This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. This week's Dreamland was recorded prior to the House hearing on UAP. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jeremy Vaney, in for Whitley Strieber, and uh, you're watching and or listening to, uh, however you get your podcasts, Dreamland. Um, today, we're finally going to do it, folks. We're going to talk about disclosure and David Grush in UFO videos, and all the stuff you love. With Mick West! That's right! <laughs> Mick, welcome to the program. Thank you, uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Mick West, according to Wikipedia, and you can correct this if it's wrong, is a British-American science writer, skeptical investigator, retired video game programmer. Um, he is the creator of the websites Contrail Science and Metabunk, he investigates and debunks pseudoscientific claims and conspiracy theories such as chemtrails and UFOs. And he is the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. So this ain't going to be Jeremy Corbell, in other words. Mick, uh, is any of that wrong? <laughs> that uh, it's more, more or less accurate. I think the only thing quibble I would have there is uh, the, the excessive use of the term debunk which I know has a very negative connotation in, in UFO circles. Uh, and really what I do with UFOs is more investigate uh, UFOs well, see, and try to figure out what they are. This is actually why I wanted to have you as a quote-unquote debunker or, uh, you know, I don't know if professionally, I think you don't really get paid as a skeptic, but professional yeah, skeptic yeah, or whatever, um, is because, now I hadn't, no offense, I hadn't really heard of you until a few years ago, when I started, people started referencing you on Twitter. Uh -huh. And um, the thing that struck me about you as a so-called debunker is the respect part. And I didn't realize that you'd written a book that is Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. So obviously, for you to put that in the title, did you see, a, you must have seen a need or something, right, for this respectful dialogue uh, between yeah. skeptics yeah. and... Yeah, I mean, like, all, all three things there in the title are there for good reason, facts, logic, and respect. I mean, obviously, like, facts and logic are what you need to figure stuff out. But the respect thing is all about uh, communicating. And you can't have a productive dialogue with someone if you don't have some measure of respect for them and they have respect for you. So the, the idea of, uh, of highlighting that aspect of it was to kind of you know, enable people to talk to each other about topics where they disagree. Because a lot of the time when someone you know, explains some idea to you and it seems kind of wacky, like they say, oh, yeah, I think the earth is flat, your, your instinct is just to laugh at them or uh, call, them, call them stupid or, or uneducated, depending on how well you know them, of course. Uh, but you know, really... If you start talking to people and trying to understand where they're coming from and you know, respect that they are human beings and they've arrived at their position with some uh, degree of thought, you know, maybe they're wrong, but uh, you know, they've, they've thought about it, try to understand where they're coming from. Respect them, they'll respect you, and then you'll be able to have a discussion and you'll be able to come to some kind of better understanding uh, eventually. But do you feel like that's true for you? Like, has that played out in reality? Because I see a lot of... Oh, yeah. Venom coming at you on Twitter because sure. that's where I, you know, see. Well, of course, this is social media, so that's going to happen. But does it get under your skin ever, or does it just always bounce off you? Like, do you find yourself becoming uh, Gollum, or are you still well, kind of a, a nice <laughs> hobbit? <laughs> 
I'm a um, a nice hobbit, although I'm a bit tall to be a <laughs> hobbit. I think I'm more of the, the Gandalf type. Excellent. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, it doesn't bother me, and the reason it doesn't bother me is that I, I know that I essentially have a fairly large audience. You know, I like you know, tens of thousands of people following me on Twitter and on YouTube. Uh, so I know that when I say something or put out a video or a tweet or something, lots and lots of different people are going to see it. And people are going to have a, a range of reactions to that, you know, based on who they are. So it's not like I put out a tweet and everybody who reads it hates it and thinks I'm an idiot. Sure, I put out a treat, a tweet, and some people are going to, you know, think that I'm an idiot and, and hate me because of it, and perhaps even write some mean tweets in response. But there's still tens of thousands of people there who aren't, you know, saying anything, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a few people who say nice things. About those, do you ever egg them on, do. though? Do you start doing tweets to just sort of jab at them? Well, you know, sometimes you do tweets that you know will create a reaction. But really what I'm trying to do there is is to create, you make people think about the situation. You know, I will you know, post uh, you know, context around other people's tweets. So I say, like, for example, Avi Loeb uh, posted about, you know, they discover some little iron micrometeorites that he thinks are from an, uh, an alien spaceship, essentially, or some kind of probe or some kind of advanced technology. And so I would post something about uh, regular micrometeorites and the fact mm -hmm. that they're very, very common and you find them on the seabed and people actually use sleds with magnets to actually find these little spheres of iron. And, you know, maybe that's what he found. So I'd post that knowing that you know some people will you know uh get angry at me because i'm like saying oh you know you're you're smart you think you're smarter than Navi Loeb. but i'm not i'm just trying to you know move the conversation forward so yeah i do post things to prompt discussion hmm. uh i don't know if i want to get into that yet but um but maybe we'll just throw it out there the idea that somebody uh has a degree you know, a master's degree in something or is a professor at a, a, a famous and great school or is, has military credentials, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I think people tend to believe that that gives them an up in the uh, discernment yeah. category and it doesn't oh, seem definitely. to pan out. Yeah. Is, is that what you find? Well, uh, all things being equal, you're going to go with the person who's, Got better education and better experience, but we don't have to just blindly trust what people say. A lot of the times, we can check it. Like for example, um, Travis Taylor, the chief scientist. Uh, well, I don't know if he's the chief scientist on the Skinwalker Ranch, but he's is a scientist. There's him and Eric Bard, the two scientists on, Eric, on Skinwalker Ranch, and he was formerly the chief scientist on the UAP task force. Like he said, just a you know, very simple example, uh, the maximum speed of an insect is one meter per second. Uh, you know, he's, he's not an expert in insects, but you know, he's got lots of PhDs, so you think, you know, he'd have checked this. But I just looked it up, and that's true. No, it's not true at all. It's, uh, you know, one meter per second is about two and a half miles per hour, which is a slow walk. And obviously, insects go a lot faster than that. And if you look into the actual speed of them, they go as fast as like 20, 30 miles per hour. So... Just because someone's got a PhD doesn't mean that you shouldn't check the things that they are saying, uh, especially when they're things that are very easy to verify. If someone says something straightforward like, that couldn't be an insect because the maximum speed of an insect uh, is far slower than that, you can look it up. 
You don't have to have a PhD in, in anything just to look things up on the internet. And also a lot of it is, is very simple mathematics. You, know, you can actually do the, the, the simple math, like you know, divide time, uh, distance divided by time, and it gives you, uh, it gives you the speed. You know, it's very, very simple things that you can do, and you don't have to trust the word of someone. So unfortunately, a lot of people do trust, and I think a lot of the people who do have these credentials have kind of got used to being trusted and they're almost like not checking their own work. Like they'll just blurt stuff out that sounds good and people around them will be like, oh yeah, and they'll be nodding. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. But they don't check it. And what I'm kind of doing some of the time is just doing that checking that people should be doing. Do you uh, also on the other side find, or have you found in the past, that there are at least certain debunkers who they've got a belief system that maybe it's... Um, um, humanism. <laughs> I find a lot of, I don't know if you're a humanist or not, but there are, I find that there are a lot of humanists that are in the skeptical world. And so they've got this sort of materialist humanist thing yeah. that they have to defend. And so they come up with things like, for instance, the one that always sticks in my mind is from back in the day was crop circles uh, are probably hedgehogs running in a circle. You know, like <laughs> things like that. Like if you're debunking yes. bunk with other bunk, is that a problem? <laughs> it, it is. And I, I think people uh, leap towards explanations that they prefer, no matter what, you know, what side of the fence they are in, in the discussion. Uh, people have a point of view, and they, they don't like it when their point of view is challenged. And so if something, something comes along um, that looks anomalous, uh, then they, they want to find an explanation for it. And so they might go very quickly towards a natural explanation, like you know, hedgehogs for crop circles or, or balloons for, uh, for, for UFOs, which might not always be the right solution when you, when you look into it in more detail. So there's certainly a rush to judgment, I think, in, uh, in any type of investigation where you've got people who are, are polarized in their opinions of what things should be when really you've got to approach an investigation with a, a neutral uh, frame of mind. I mean, you're sure you can, you can take lots of things into account. Like if you know that hedgehogs tend to make crop circles, then you could suspect them as a candidate in this, this new crop circle. But if this is something that you've never even heard of before and you're just kind of making it up, hmm, drunk hedgehogs, that sounds, sounds more plausible than aliens, so I'm going to go with drunk hedgehogs. Then, then no, you shouldn't really be just like making one thing up when you, someone else is making something else up. So you, you need to you know, keep an open mind and not rush to judgment. I know, um, you know, in the past, at least, uh, the sort of public-facing skeptics were dominated by magicians and um, yeah. scientists or science writers, but you come out of computer programming. You gave us the Tony Hawk Pro Skate video games, right? So... Does that affect, like, I imagine being able to create out of ones and zeros lifelike images uh, maybe affects how you see, I don't know, the ability to hoax versus you know, what we can actually do that a lot of people yeah. can't see what we can actually do from the inside like that. Is that a factor in why you've taken this on? Yeah, well, I think with all the skeptics, uh, they... they you, know, you use your own strengths. So magicians were very big in this, still are very big in the skeptical community because a lot of the things to be skeptical of 
are kind of paranormal claims, like claims of clairvoyance and psychic powers and psychokinesis and stuff like that, a lot of which can be replicated by stage magicians uh, doing stage magic. Uh, and so you know, they are the ideal people to be able to detect uh, tricks like that when people are trying to fool people uh, or, or replicate it. Uh, and what I'm doing is looking mostly at videos. So my expertise is in, in video games, and uh, uh, that doesn't mean that the games are making uh, <laughs> videotapes, but it means that um, you know, you're, you're creating something that's a picture on the TV screen. You know, when you're playing a game, it's you know, obviously you're, you're moving your thumbs around or you're doing whatever the interface is, and things happen on the screen. Things move around in the 3D world. So I understand how to go from you know one thing to another. I know how to go from inputs to things moving around. So that's kind of a little bit about how the physics works. And I also know how to take a, a 3D representation of the world. You know, we know, let's say, there's a cube over here, there's a doorway over here, there's a little guy running around over here in three dimensions. And how do you take that you know, internal representation and translate it into a picture on the screen? Because uh, photographs are two dimensions. They're just a flat, a flat thing, a flat surface. Uh, uh, and a video is the same thing. You know, you, unless you're in virtual reality, which is just two, two images, uh, then you, you're just looking at flat images. Now, the problem with that is that when you're looking at something like a UFO flying around, you don't know how far away it is. You just know that it's moving from here to here on the screen. And if it doesn't get any bigger or smaller, you can't really tell if it's moving forward or backwards. And if you don't know how big it is to start with, even if it changes size, you don't know uh, how much it is moving in three dimensions. But what you can do is use the, the same math that I use in 3D video game programming, kind of put it in reverse and you can figure out what the range of solutions are. And then you can use various other clues from the scene to try to figure out where it might be, where it might be moving. And a lot of times with, with UFO videos, we get what we call a, an SFA, uh, small or far away. Like you don't know if what you're looking at is a tiny object or a big object. And a lot of people assume automatically it's a big object that's far away, so it looks like uh, uh, it looks like it's small on screen, but people think you know it's flying over those trees, therefore it must be as far away as those trees, when it could, in fact, just be um, two feet in front of the camera and be something very, very small, like, a, like an insect. Uh, so understanding that three-dimensional relationship is very, very important, and it's certainly something that I, I got from video game programming. So is there a point at which you overstep your bounds of your expertise? Like we're going to be talking, hopefully, about David Grush. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I'm not in the military, so I, I don't... My, my angle of David Grush is, as myself an experiencer, I don't uh, see how these ex that any of these sort of high strangeness experiences go the way of that type of narrative. And so I'm always looking for, okay, what's the rub here? And plus history just dictates that when a UFO whistleblower comes out, it, it's nonsense. <laughs> so yeah. I'm always looking for that. But I don't even know that that qualifies me. But what, what qualifies you to talk about David Grush? Well, I think pretty much the same thing as anybody else. Uh, he says things and you can kind of just do you know, a consistency check, you know, a reality check on what he's actually saying, like what is the actual evidence. Now, if, if all we're doing is like some expert comes forward and tells us the story, 
he tells these things have happened. In David Grush's case, he's saying like, you know, I discovered this secret program and then I talked to various people and they told me things about it and I've seen documents. So we've got, you know, his word for that. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be an expert to see that the issue there is that all we have is his story. We don't have the actual evidence. You, know, you don't actually need to have a degree in physics or anything like that to, to understand that there are some problems with the story so far uh, that uh, you know, need to be explained or need to be backed up with actual evidence. And you don't need to be, have a degree in physics or anything like that to understand that some of the claims are pretty extraordinary. Like the idea that we have 12 flying saucers in various hangars um, around the United States and other countries have the same ones. Uh, some of these craft were as big as a football field and uh, you know, the various other claims that have been made by Grush and, and other people are you know, quite extraordinary. If you look at uh, one of the claims by his, uh, his lawyer associate, Danny Sheehan, was that one of the craft was bigger on the inside than on the outside, which is, you know, sure, it's, it's something that you could say, oh, yes, we can imagine how that would work with physics, uh, some kind of space warping thing, but that would be something that would be so unusual that you really need a bit more evidence that it happened than just some anonymous source relayed secondhand via Danny Sheehan. And the same thing with a lot of the stuff that, that Grush is saying. Uh, I await uh, the congressional hearings with interest. You know, I think we kind of need to figure out what's going on here. We need to figure out why David Grush is saying the things he's saying. You know, maybe there is some sort of secret program that he wasn't given access to, and maybe that is illegal. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that it's aliens. Maybe there was some kind of um, disinformation campaign where they were using the idea of UFOs to kind of distract from something else, and it kind of got a bit out of hand. We just don't know at this point, and it's kind of a wait-and-see game. So uh, is it Ross Colhart? Is that the name of the man who interviewed yes. him? Okay. Yes. So Ross Colhart seems to be, you know, he comes off as, I'm just interviewing this man, and then it turns out, no, this is more you have a belief. And then it turns out it seems though as though he's more of a handler of David Grush. Is that fair? Like, I feel like we've seen this playbook before. Uh, yeah, I would say very much. Is that something that smells bad to you? It it, it it's uh, certainly a concern. You know, you say you see you see the interview on uh, News Nation, and there's there's Ross Colhart and Dave Grush together. But you know, they've essentially been working together for many many months uh, before this point. They've been going around talking to other people. They did a kind of a, a show and tell event uh, for Canadian opposition MPs in Canada, where they went up with, with Gary Nolan and you know, Ross, Ross attended via, uh, uh, via Zoom, as far as I know. But you know, they have been involved in this, this attempt to promote this particular narrative and promote Dave Grush's involvement in it. Uh, for a long time. So we're not getting this, what we need, which would be kind of an independent investigation of it by journalists who can ask skeptical questions rather than questions that are designed to promote a certain narrative. Are there any of the whistleblowers that have come out of late who you uh, believe? Well, I think uh, a lot or of believe the whistleblowers... They believe it? Yeah, I think a lot of the whistleblowers believe what they are saying and it may well be that Grush himself believes that what he is saying 
It doesn't mean that what they are saying is accurate, though. People can form beliefs uh, based on a variety of things, you know, things that people have told them or shown them or uh, experiences that they have had that perhaps they misperceived or they have uh, evolved false memories about. The, it doesn't mean that they're lying. Uh, so when some whistleblower comes forward and says, you know, this happened, you know, I saw these things, it doesn't mean that they made it up, but it also doesn't mean that those things actually happened. And you know, this is, gives us a very unfortunate situation in that we've got all these these people, often very well-meaning people, coming forward, blowing the whistle, but their stories can't be corroborated. They can't be backed up and they can't be proven that you know these things happened or were flying saucers were where they said they were. And I feel you know, it's kind of sad that that's probably what's going to happen with Grush. And I think that's already been telegraphed by um, Ross Colhart. He said he thinks that we're not going to see the president standing up and saying aliens are real. He thinks it's all going to be, in, in his words, put back in the box. He mm. thinks it's all going to be basically covered up. They're going to not you know, explain this secret alien crash, crash retrieval program, and uh, it'll go. Why, back in why the are box. they asking for hearings? <laughs> uh, well, the the hearings, you know, the 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 secret stuff that he would tell them would be in the closed portion of the of the hearing. I think you know, they, if they have public hearings and he names names and points out where the UFOs are, that would be great. But I don't think they're going to have him reveal anything. And the things that he, he is going to re he doesn't actually know anything, so it's really going to be about the other people rather than him, the people who are actually claimed to work on the programs. Those are the ones who have the really interesting information. Grush, I think, is kind of, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the chink in the dam uh, with these people who believe that this is going on. And now they're coming forward. They're going to talk to Congress. Congress is going to investigate. And we'll see what happens. I, mean, I have my suspicions, and you know, I, I suspect simply that there isn't actually a secret uh, UFO crash retrieval program going on. Uh, and it, there are other crash retrieval programs for retrieving crashed Soviet uh, spaceships and satellites and submarines and planes and the same thing with Chinese stuff and from other countries as well. And these are top secret programs. And it may be that when he was investigating stuff, he kind of bumped up against these top secret programs that he didn't have clearance for. He requested clearance and it was denied. And he thought that he should have clearance because he thought it was a UFO program. And he became convinced of this. And other people likewise are convinced. Uh, that's that's what I think is the most likely outcome. Of course, it's quite possible. Well, I wouldn't say quite possible. It is possible that they, there is, at some point, our military has recovered something that somebody thought was actually from an alien spaceship. Uh, I don't know what that might be or why they thought it or if it actually was, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, so I certainly would keep that on the list of possible explanations for what's going on. But again, you know, it's going to be wait and see, and it might be wait and see and nothing happens. Well, I know I had seen where you'd said online um, that it's, it's possible that the people who are coming to him in confidence and telling him of these programs are working on sort of compartmentalized, like you're saying, you know, other you mm -hmm. know, foreign crash retrievals, and they might think that they're working on, they might think they're reverse engineering um, alien stuff, but it's actually foreign is that a more likely scenario than these people are coming to him because they put, no offense, David, like some sort of 
you know, useful idiot in charge that they could feed this stuff to and create a narrative for whatever reason? It's, yeah, it's kind of difficult because you, when you think what's more likely, we're talking about things that we don't have that much experience of. Uh, we do know that there was some degree of, of letting the public, you know, speculate about UFOs and pilots speculate about UFOs and aliens because it was easier than explaining the U-2 uh, test flights. You know, when the U-2 was being flown at um, over 60,000 feet, pilots were reporting it. And, you know, it was a secret American plane that no one's supposed to know about. But pilots would occasionally see there's something, you know, 30,000 feet above them when they're at 30,000 feet and they're going, what the heck is that? They report it to air traffic control. It was easier to let it be talked about as, as a UFO. So, you know, that's possible. But... It seems like it's getting rather complicated now. The the idea of um, a story about uh, UFO crash retrievals covering up Russian crash retrievals being deliberately promoted by the government you know, is that is that plausible? It's hard to hard to say which is more likely. And if it is what's happened, it's kind of backfired really, because now you've they've managed uh, the the UFO enthusiasts who who believe that it's UFO, it's actually aliens. I've got so much momentum going that it kind of risks blowing the whole operation if it is, in fact, a cover-up thing. Mm. Uh, but, and then the other idea that we're trying to compare it against is could, they, could people have got sufficiently confused about the whole situation because there's so much compartmentalization uh, of, of what's going on that they think that they are working on, on UFOs. And I, I, I'm not, I don't know about that because it's hard to say because everything is so secret. We don't really know what's going on. And we do know some UFO whistleblowers who claim to be whistleblowers have come forward like with the, the Disclosure Project um, with Greer. And some of them don't seem to be credible. They give, they give stories that are so extraordinary. What? And, Greer is <laughs> and promoting the, something not credible? Wait a minute. The, Back the up. The people <laughs> who come forward, like, you know, they, they, again, they seem to mean well, but then they will tell you stories about having seen bases on the moon and you know, maybe teleporting to Mars and things like that. You know, very extreme things for which you know, it seems very unlikely. Uh, but Greer promotes it as fact. And you know, perhaps these are people who actually worked at NASA or wherever and somehow, for some reason, became convinced. So I think that's kind of evidence that it might happen. That you know, sometimes people do get the wrong idea. Their brains get fixated on a certain thing, and they think something is true when it actually isn't. Especially people who retire, and then many, many years later, they start telling stories. I think there was a guy who had a deathbed confession. I can't remember the name of him, but there's a famous photo of him holding up a photo of an alien that he says was an actual alien that they all studied or he knew the people who studied this particular alien and then someone found the matching alien at walmart he was just this doll uh, alien doll that had been for sale for, for many years and it was just a photograph of that exact same doll so people can get fooled you know people sometimes have very high opinions of their own intellect and once they get an idea it's kind of difficult for them to kind of un unwind that idea if they're actually wrong and so they compound the idea and they're going to go with it but you know this this isn't me trying to like say everybody's crazy and making things up these are just possibilities these are things that we need to consider if we're going to consider things like you know massive government cover-up we've also got to 
consider the possibility that there's some kind of uh, a cock up, like some kind of they messed up uh, the individual people talking. And we also have to consider the idea that there are some real secret programs going on. And then even more kind of unlikely, but still something we need to consider is that there might have been in the past some alien spaceship that crashed and we recovered the uh, debris from it. And that's what led to all of this talk. Uh, I don't think the last thing is particularly likely, but you know, all these things are things we have to consider because they're all pretty unusual, but something unusual is happening. You know, it used to be sort of a truism that whatever the military has is going to be some something between 50 and 75 years ahead of what the public knows. Um, if that ever was true, uh, do you think that that's still true? Or Because we don't know where our energy source is going nowadays. So would they build something that far advanced that runs on gas, for instance? Yeah, I, I, I think you know these estimates of 50 years in advance are a little bit over the top. Uh, the military builds things that need to be very reliable, so they often actually use fairly old technology. And if you get inside you know, an FA-18 uh, from, say, 20 years ago, it doesn't feel like it's 50 years uh, ahead of its time. Uh, it's it's kind of clunky and mechanical, and you know it, it records uh, the cockpit video onto um, uh, VHS tape, essentially eight millimeter VHS tape. Uh, it's got all these 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 simple things. Like you think back to like say the um, the moon landings, like the computers that we use on the 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 the, the lunar lander and the uh, the the command module were very simple computers compared to what was actually available at the time. But they were very, very reliable computers. They were just very straightforward, simple little things. And the same thing goes for things like missiles and things like that. We don't have super advanced computers in them because modern computers are a little bit fragile. You want something that's tried and tested. So in, in, in many ways, I think military technology that is deployed is quite a bit behind uh, the, the leading edge of, of technology, what's actually out there. So you uh, saying now, that, I, I got to say, is leading to my fear that what's really going on, what we're really seeing is the lie of our, you know, sort of the American military might and ingenuity and all of that, plus everyone who's ever been in the military or is a scientist, you know, is, is the best mind, is the top. Hmm. And what we're seeing is it's just people. And it's just like can, technology that's convenient to have. Yeah. It's probably better than what everyone else has, just simply because we pour mo more money into our military budget than anyone else on the planet. But yeah, so well, it's... do we have, I, I just want to ask it this way, like, does this give truth to the lie of sort of American uh, exceptionalism in those ways? That we hope we're well, I mean, completely you have protected to, by geniuses, and we're not. Yeah, you have to compare it to other countries, I, I would say. And I think, to a certain degree, you know, Russia is kind of falling apart to a degree at the moment. But China is still very much on the ascendant. Uh, they've been pouring a vast amount of money into infrastructure and into to research, scientific research. And they're rapidly getting a much more powerful and more sophisticated uh, military uh, than, than the United States. So, you know, Americans, Americans were certainly exceptional uh, 
you know they are now but you know certainly like 10 20 years ago but that that is changing as geopolitics change and china becomes more and more of a, a major superpower especially in terms of the military uh but you know, we've always had very good science here uh, a lot of you know, scientific discoveries you know, came from america in the last uh the last you know 50 plus years like computers things like that and uh, uh a lot of you know technology throughout the world has been driven by things that originally came from america you look into the military we do have amazing planes but then again so do other countries sure sometimes they're copying things from the u.s but they're also advancing like china had this uh this hypersonic craft that could actually circle the earth a couple of times before it came down on its target which made it very very difficult uh to, to do anything about and that's something that at the time they said that we had nothing at all like that so they're not far off we're kind of achieving parity uh but yeah i don't think there's this 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 secret um kind of parallel world of scientists working on things that is 50 years in the future in the military there is there's very very talented people in the military uh industrial complex working on things that are going to be rolled out you know 10 years down the line you know like the, the the new stealth bomber that that was unveiled recently has been in the works for a long time but they're not super duper advanced they're not like anti-gravity or anything like that they're just you know much better versions of the existing thing like these 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 new craft that they have they have much more integrated computer systems uh, fly-by-wire things they have uh very complicated computer designed contours that reflect radar you know you remember the old kind of uh say the f uh f117 was it the the kind of stealth fighter it had these very angular shapes and the reason it had these very angular shapes was that it was designed basically using 1970s computers and the you know they weren't using computers that were 50 years ahead of their time they were just using the computers they had back then and they couldn't figure out how to make it curved so they just they just had a very simple configuration of, of facets uh, that made it give this ridiculous angular look and this is why the newer jets all have curves because now we have super powerful computers that are going to figure out how to make these curves but yeah, if we had today's computers 50 years ago, we would have used them then to make them, but we, we're not using it. Why, what's the point for having technology that's 50 years ahead of its time if you have to wait 50 years to use it? Right. <laughs> well, I guess just my fear is, um, in terms of all this, is like, for instance, there was the young military guy, I don't remember his name, who just recently got in trouble for putting documents on some mm -hmm. social media site or whatever, you know, to... Discord. For likes, yeah, on Discord to like bolster his own ego, presumably not anything more than that. And if you've got someone like David Grush, who's being told stories and everyone involved is that wrong for whatever reason, then, you know, the idea that it's just one bad apple, right. Is like, no, there might be a systemic failure where there's a lot of people who we just assume are together and in the know and are, whether we fight against them as, you know, a disclosure activist or embrace them or whatever, they're the authority figure, right? They know what's going yeah. on. And maybe that's just not true. No, and that's, that's a very good point. And it's something I've thought about a lot is that what might be going on is that, like you say, things aren't as good as we'd hope they would be. The Pentagon isn't as competent as you would hope it would be. I think you've only got to look at the uh, the first UAP task force. 
which was set up, um, I guess, just kind of shortly after the New York Times article came out, like a year or so after that. I don't know, it was 2018, 2019, something like that. But the people running this this UAP task force, you have people like like Travis Taylor and Jay Stratton. Jay Stratton was the lead scientist, and Travis Taylor was, no, sorry, Jay Stratton was the ran the whole thing. He was the guy who had all the security clearances. He could go anywhere he wanted and do whatever he wanted. And then he, he hired uh, Travis Taylor because he got impressed by this book Travis Taylor had written about alien warfare. But they didn't do a very good job uh, of, of doing anything. They had like you know, 115 cases and they sold one of them as a balloon. You know, the, the, the next UAP task force, I think, has been doing a, a, a better job, uh, Arrow. Uh, they've actually... St- you know, kind of resolved a very large number of, of their cases to be things like like balloons that have actually figured them out. But, you know, Travis Taylor has consistently been shown to make these mistakes over and over again. And yet he is the person who was uh, assigned to be the chief scientist of this task force. Now, you would expect if the Pentagon is putting together a task force of people to investigate something as important as, as UAPs, they would pick people who had this an, a known track record of, of solving issues like this. And they didn't. They just kind of like, oh, you're interested in UFOs, you can be on the task force. And it seems, it seems like you know, they really didn't have a very professional attitude to, to what they were doing. And I'm not sure if that is something that reflects kind of a deeper systemic failure or if it's something that's just because UFOs and UAPs were a bit of a, you know, a stigmatized thing for a long time and still not really taken seriously. But then you've got to look at you know, what you were saying there with all these people are coming forward now who have become convinced that there is a secret UFO crash retrieval program. Now, if there is, yeah, that's, I guess that's fine, but that indicates another problem with all the cover-up and everything. But if there isn't, you know, how did all these people get this idea? Are they all just you know, UFO enthusiasts like Travis Taylor and Jay Stratton who just you know, became convinced for some reason? Uh, I guess you know, time will tell. I uh, think so that not, it's uh, going to end not up... Not too hopeful. I'll give you the spoiler alert. This is what it's going to be. Ready? <laughs> okay. All these guys are certain that this is true, and so they're pushing it so that the government will feel pressed to look into it to prove that they're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Lou Elizondo and all those guys. Yes. I think the yeah, fact that they're... Uh, to, to me, the real conspiracy, if they're, or if that's the right word, maybe it isn't even, but the real problem, the real thing to uncover for the media to latch onto here, to me, is like from Harry Reid on up, we see people f- funneling money into their pet UFO project that should have been allocated to other things, like taxpayer resources, that Harry Reid even said, yeah, I just kind of lied about what I was going to use this money yeah. for and put it into my pet project here. Um, or, you know, hey, we should have been looking for Chinese spy balloons, but we were looking for UFOs, sorry. You know, that kind of thing, how is that not setting off alarm bells and becoming like a big media story. Is it not a big media story waiting to happen? It should be. I I think part of the issue there is that, uh, well, there's a couple of issues. I think one is that it's a small amount of money uh, for the overall Pentagon budget. You know, people like to 
you know, harp on things like the the Pentagon did a study on you know, pesticides in frogs or something like that, and they spent you know, five million dollars on it, and that's a terrible thing. And sometimes people will find these little things, but no one really cares about you know, relatively small amounts of money. It's just kind of like a political talking point. But I think the other thing is that the actual reality of what's going on is is kind of too silly for the mainstream media to talk about. You know, when you actually look into the history of things like, like ATIP and ORSAP, it goes back to Skinwalker Ranch. And I think a lot of the media are just like, this is just ridiculous. Like, all right, we'll talk about, you know, this, there's a, a program studying UFOs and, you know, we're trying to figure out what these things are off, off Virginia. But it all started with, like, you know, one of the scientists from the Pentagon seeing tubular bells in the kitchen of a ranch uh, where werewolves have been spotted. I mean, it, it's 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 almost like it's a uh, it it almost like inoculates itself against scrutiny because it's so ridiculous. It's hiding under this 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 ridiculousness. You can't actually get down to the the root of it because they don't the media doesn't take it seriously. But it is serious. This is. This is what we're actually talking about. You know, Jay Stratton like had supernatural encounters at Skinwalker Ranch, and then later he's running the UAP task force. You know, Travis Taylor is is the now the lead scientist was the the a, a scientist at Skinwalker Ranch, and he was the chief scientist on the UAP task force. And apparently now he he uh, he consults with the Space Force, and he's he's running a UAP program for Radiant Technology. It, it's 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 almost too silly to be true, and I think that prevents some journalists from actually digging into it. But they really should. But so, what's the silly part? Because to me, it's like if if they honestly believe they had these experiences, that would be the thing that makes triggers them to want to research this stuff. Yeah. Well, it, that's fine from their perspective. The the thing is that we're now getting the Pentagon investigating things based on very, very little evidence. Essentially just like somebody had a spooky experience at the ranch, which for them seemed very, very real. Uh, but there's no actual evidence of anything at all going on at Skinwalker Ranch. There's no, there's nothing repeatable has come forward. None of the studies have really produced anything. All the stuff you see on the TV show is very inconclusive. Uh, some of the stuff is, is basically just flat wrong. Uh, but there's really no good evidence that anything is going on there. And yet somehow... Like this led to the formation of a uh, an organization to study UFOs you know, because of Skinwalker Ranch. You know, not because people were seeing UFOs in the sky, but because of these strange things that were happening uh, at that people thought were happening at Skinwalker Ranch. And if there was some evidence of them actually happening, that would be great. But it's you know I think it kind of boils down to individual testimony uh which you know you know from your perspective obviously as an experience so that's something that's very relevant but from the pentagon's perspective can they just say that you know a guy saw these these tubular bells appear so we'll give them money no it had to be done in secret they had to hide it harry reed had to disguise this program as a, a study of the future of aviation technology when really he was wanting to study essentially supernatural stuff that was going on at the ranch well, see, this is interesting because Skinwalker Ranch, there is, again, another story there that I feel like nobody's latched onto or practically nobody. That is the, maybe the answer, and maybe you know the answer to this. So Skinwalker for me used to be, you know, when you read the books, 
right? It's like, oh my God, to, to someone like me, it's like, oh, this is amazing, you know, portals and blah. And then when you, the thing that really turned me off to it was seeing the show. When you see the people in charge, it's like, oh no, these are just some yeah. doofuses who are like suckling at the teat of, uh, you know, the real estate mogul. <laughs> but I think it was like the second or maybe third episode. I only watched a few because it was like watching paint dry to me. But they dug into the dirt and found that it was radioactive and that there had been radioactive dirt, you know, due to nuclear testing and they were sort of downwind of this nuclear testing. Is that why people are getting mysterious cancer? Is that why people are having hallucinations? Is that what this is? Is that possible? Well, probably not, no, because all of Utah is <laughs> downwind of these nuclear sites. It's not like this one little five-acre spot is where all this, this, this nuclear dust ended up. So there's nothing at all really special about that particular spot. And you know, the idea that people are you know, getting lots of diseases, there hasn't really been any real study of that. Are they getting them with more frequency than just the general population? You know, If you get 50 people, someone's going to get cancer in the next you know, so many years. It's just an unfortunate fact of life. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about this. This uh, I can't remember how many acres it is. Let's say eighty acres of land. And if you look at it, it's not even a, a, a round area. There's there's a bit. There's an L-shaped bit, and then there's another bit that isn't, isn't even connected really. It's just diagonally connected. And then there's all these other ranches all around, and there's some oil fields to the south, and then there's an Indian reservation. Uh, uh, area to the north and then there's this, the mesa and anyone can go walk on the mesa and this is you know it's all just right there and there's nothing really going on except for what you know when people concentrate on the ranch and they start looking really hard then they see things which is what happens when you look really hard if you sit outside at night and look up in the sky you're going to see some lights in the sky and you know, some of those you might not be able to to identify quickly if at all because not everything is on uh, on flight radar uh, and you're going to hear strange noises and sometimes your your cattle are going to be attacked by dogs that run away and then you can claim it was a werewolf so things are going to happen and if you're really focused on looking for strange things it becomes very easy to interpret ordinary things as strange things hmm. All right, that's it. Non-subscribers, please consider joining unknowncountry.com to get the rest of this interview. Uh, I'm going to try to talk to Mick about some of the stuff I talked about in my previous two solo episodes. How do you think that's going to go? You're going to have to subscribe to find out. Um, and, of course, get all of uh, Dreamland from forever. <laughs> like a million episodes or something like that, roughly. Um, if not, Whitley will be back next week, and I will see you in about a month. Take care, and thanks for watching and or listening, depending on how you are receiving this. Um, so is there anything about, I don't, I don't know even what other topics you, you get into if you deal with ghosts and crop circles and things, but of any of the, the, the whole milieu, um, is there anything that you are secretly hopeful turns out to have something to it or is it purely a stance of none of this can be true and uh, well, it's my job to prove that i i i'd be happy if any of it was true uh i would you know i i would love it especially like aliens like the idea of aliens uh, and alien technology and alien visitors and um talking with an alien civilization that would be great now uh, if 
the UFOs that are here now that people are reporting actually are uh, alien craft, it seems like they're peaceful aliens. They're not doing anything bad to us. In fact, they they've apparently they've done things like shut off our nuclear weapons as a friendly little reminder that you know we shouldn't be blowing things up. That was a long time ago and it hasn't happened since. But uh it it seems like you know the 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 narrative that is being projected is of essentially benign aliens, even though some people try to frame it as a threat. I mean they're not doing anything. The only threat really is that they sometimes get a bit too close to other planes. So if that's true and they are actually aliens, that would be awesome. That would be really, really cool if we could actually you know, reveal that truth. And if there are things like crashed flying saucers and agreements with alien races and things like that, that would also be awesome because that would represent a huge uh, paradigm shift in science and a huge new area of exploration for science and the opportunity for humanity to get off this planet and populate uh, the rest of the universe. Although maybe the aliens are already there and why why haven't they contacted us? All sorts of kinds of questions uh, being raised there. But, uh, but yeah, I'd love it if it was true. If aliens were contacting us via crop circles, that would be weird, but awesome. I mean, like if the, some of these crop circles were actually coded messages from aliens... How amazing would that be? That would be like, you know, uh, really, really cool. Um, ghosts, if ghosts were real, life after death, awesome. <laughs> so that would be really, really cool also if we could prove that the ghosts were real and that you could survive after death. So I, I'm all for uh, anomalous and interesting advancements in, in our knowledge of the universe. And unfortunately, though, I'm kind of biased in that every time I investigate these things, either uh, it, you can't resolve the situation, you can't figure it out because there's not enough information, or if there is enough information, it turns into something unfortunately ordinary, like UFOs turn out to be planes, and ghosts turn out to be reflections, and uh, crop circles tend to be man-made. So if I say to you that there is such a thing as translogical events that transcend and include logic. So they, they maybe have an anchor point in logic, but there's something beyond that happening. But because it's not logical, it looks like silly, irrational, mm. crazy stuff. Is that something that you can engage with at all? Or is that like, no, there's only logic. There's well, only irrational and the provable and uh, repeatable. I mean, it, it's something that it kind of almost sounds like playing with words in a way. Like if you're saying there's something that transcends logic it kind of like allows you to you know, create any arbitrary situation and say this is plausible because we don't we're not bound by logic anymore we're using transcendental logic transcendental logic uh and then you can say anything so i don't see how you know if someone could demonstrate that uh trans logic uh beyond logic uh uh is real I think saying trans logic is uh, might might confuse people into today's political climate. It's, uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, meta logic perhaps might be a better word. Like uh, like if if meta logic is a real thing and it, it works, then then yes. But if we're just positing the existence of meta logic, then it 
I can't really go very far with that because it, it's very, you know, you're introducing an entirely new thing that we don't know if it exists or not, but it allows you to create a, a, a framework of arguments to back up anything at all you like. So, uh, no, I'm against it. But I think both of them do. Like, I think, because um, here's, here's my problem. I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, but I've lived a life of, you know, pockmarked with high strange experiences that I used to, in, in some sense, want to prove. Like, I, I would have loved back in the day um, for science to take an interest in all of that. But at some point, I came to realize that these experiences are more personal to me, even though I don't believe they come out of personal psychology. I think they're, I think it is more in common with, unfortunately, I don't like the word because of all the connotations, but shamanism or something like that. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I feel like there is something that, that is that, you know, metallurgical, but that you're right in that I could just be lying <laughs> and using that to say whatever I want. But on the other hand, logic could be used like to keep yourself in a box where this stuff isn't true. And like both of these things. So I, I don't know. I just I'm, yeah. I guess I'm finding the place where like, OK, unless I come to you with video or something that I say, look, take a look. This is provably demonstrable that there, there is this space that science can't touch that you're right is convenient for me to, to like live in my delusion and not have to deal with that. But, oh, well, like that's where we kind of find ourselves. Is, yeah. is that ring? Like, it, what's I think nothing? like maybe it, it kind of feels like you're not so much talking about logic there, but kind of about like the scientific method in a way, which isn't really just logic based. It's, it's you know, the process of you know, evidence based uh, reasoning. Uh, and you're kind of positing something that you, where you rely more upon your personal experience as as forming the world worldview than the you know, external science. So you you take right. yeah, it's kind of like you know the old phenomenology thing. How do you know what is real and uh, what's uh, what's created inside your mind? Uh, you, you everyone can kind of everyone has their own model of the universe. And their own understanding of the universe, their own you know ontology and their epistemology, where uh, they they have not a model of the universe and a way of of gathering knowledge about the universe. Uh, and I think you know some people are are more kind of vested in their personal uh, ontology than they are on the the communal ontology of the scientific community and you pay, place a lot more weight upon your own personal experience and experiences that resonate with you that you've heard from other people than you do on you know, what what science and authority tells you so some in some ways it's a little bit of a rebellious thing but it's also it's mostly i think about you know trusting yourself which is which is something that that's fine but you know there's also then when it comes into conflict with science, how do you resolve that conflict? You just say, like, you know, science must be wrong, and I must be right. Or do you say, you know, I might be wrong, and science might be right? Or do you just kind of exist in some kind of nebulous uncertainty? No, I think you say science has its place, and this is the place. And it can't, unfortunately, you can't use that mind to deal with this broader picture. You can do the details here and there. And you can say, like, you can whittle out what isn't happening, 
right? You can whittle out the balloons and the, mm -hmm. all of that, but you can't say what is happening. Yeah. And it's tempting to say the only reason we can't say what's happening is because we haven't discovered it yet because, you know, we just haven't. But I think that there's a piece of it that is, you know, contemplative or is personal, uh, unfortunately, but not in the way of like trying to fortify your own belief system about it and like have main character syndrome or something like that. But just in the way of there are certain aspects that aren't communal. That that we want to be communal, we want affirmation, yeah. we want authority, and they just aren't. Um, I think, does I think that like, not ring true to you? I think um, you know the kind of the key to it is is uh, that we're talking about unknowns, and um, it's when people take things that are unknown, like what what happened. You know, you have an experience, you don't know what happened. You know what your experience was, but you don't know what explains it. Uh, when I when I was growing up, I was reading a magazine called The Unexplained, which you know, is basically all about this type of thing and you know, all kinds of things, UFOs, like ghosts, um, spontaneous human combustion, telepathy, and cryptozoology, all those type of things. They're all unexplained. And it's kind of, in a way, it's fine that things are unexplained. They're unexplained because we don't have enough information about uh, these these events or these bits of evidence. And I guess the issue that we're talking about kind of comes when we tr we try to create some kind of explanation for them. And if you just, you know, you had your experiences and if you just say, well, that was really weird and I don't know what caused it, you know, that's, you know, in some ways would be fine because you don't have enough information to say what it was. But then you know, that's not really satisfactory. So we're driven to try to find a cause. And so you think, well, perhaps this is... Uh, my brain communing with a deeper level of the universe or something like that. Or perhaps this is, you know, um, uh, interdimensional beings like beaming thoughts into my head, or perhaps this was you know, an alien spaceship. So you try to think of all these possible explanations, but really what happened is an unknown. It's an unidentified thing. UFOs are unidentified flying objects. Uh, they're not identified aliens. Uh, objects. They're unidentified flying objects that some people hypothesize are aliens. And it's this boundary between letting things be unknown and then creating hypotheses to explain them, the way we get into these, these issues and disagreements. But I guess where I'm coming from is that there, that is exactly correct, but there's also the unknowable. And so what that means is <laughs> mystery with a capital M is yeah. to be the reasons to be engaged solo. It's kind of, you know, meditative in a sense, but it's like, there is a state of selflessness in which you're no longer this, this, and, uh, everything's a little bit different then. So it's unknowable because you can't get there through reason and logic and giving answers or illogic. Like you just can't, there's no way to seek out, uh, in other words, there's no way to answer an unanswerable. Yeah, yeah. But there is an unanswerable. And so you have to be it. Like, you have to dissolve. The brain has to see that the seeker is in the way. Dissolve the seeker. You know, if there is anything beyond thought, it beyond the seeker, then it will be the case. And if not, then you've been deluding yourself. Yeah. Is that not something that, that makes sense to you? Or sure, no, it does. It does, because, I mean, it's really, we know that there are unknowables in the universe. Uh, we think that science gives us all the answers, but you know, we don't 
know for sure. Like we don't, we have like a good model of how the universe works. We don't know, for example, if we're living in a simulation. And this is something that lots of people seriously suggest that the universe might actually be a simulation, like running on a, a supercomputer uh, in, an, in another universe. And what we're seeing is just kind of uh, reality that is kind of arising from computers. And that's why we get, when we get down to the not. quantum level, <laughs> things are very, very strange. And this is, you know, this is something we don't know, and it's perhaps unknowable, because if you're running in a simulation, how would you be able to figure that out? People have theorized mm. various ways, but then maybe the designers of this, this giant video game we're in have, have figured that out as well. And then there's, that raises kind of other questions, like what happens after you die? Science will say that you know, your brain stops working, your brain is where consciousness is, and that's where it ends. But all of us hope that... Uh, uh, even if we feel it's probably not true, we all hope that there is life after death, and we hope that you know, pe other people have transcended this existence and moved to another. I tend to think that when you die, you just everything ends and you go black. But it would be, you know, I, I can't, I'd be lying if I didn't say I hope that when I die, I go to some different existence. It would be great. But these are unknowables. These are things that you, you can't know because you would have to understand the entirety of the universe to be able to answer them. Uh, so I think it's it's natural to try to, like you say, kind of commune with the unknowable and try to kind of get in touch with this. And a lot of people feel that having things like altered mental states brings them closer to some kind of actual reality of the universe. Like people who take like DMT will tell you that they have these hyper-real experiences where they, they talk to beings. Uh, sometimes they describe them as like little elves or, or even like alien greys and things like that. Uh, now, is that your mind playing tricks with you because you're on DMT and everyone has similar things because our brains are similar? Or is it actually you know, this this unknowable substrate of the universe that uh, you're actually communing with? I mean, I, I'm a scientific guy, so I tend to think it's your brain playing tricks, but I can certainly see why people think it's something far more significant. Um, do you engage with other theories uh, in terms of, well, for instance, George Hansen's trickster theory? Do you know about that? Is that something that you have looked well, at? Uh, I mean, I, is that similar to um, Jacques Vallée's trickster theory? I guess. I mean, George Hansen, at least back in the day, used to say you can't say you know what this is. It's just really an observation of the things that go on mm -hmm. perpetually and are predictable in terms of the types of witnesses that are propped up, yeah. how society responds, how skeptics respond. Is that something that you look I think, at? I'm not familiar with Hanson's, but like, you know, where you describe it there and, you know, the things that Jacques Vallée have said, I, I think the trickster theory kind of arises from uh, the difficulty of reconciling all the different things to hap that happen to people and the difficulty of reconciling that with science. You know, the trickster theory is that basically somebody is playing tricks on us uh, to make us see things like UFOs and strange, strange events. Well, for, for actually, let me let me just stop you there because I don't think Hansen yeah. goes that far. But I'll just give you an example because this okay. is something I used to do another show called Paratopia. And when we started talking to George Hansen, my old broadcast partner and I, we started looking for these things when we would talk to experiencers and in our own lives. And it's so it's things like. Um, when you have a paranormal experience, and actually you see this in movies all the time, so I don't know why this you know, is like a revelatory thing, but it seems to be at times of um, you know, a betwixt-in-between state. You've lost your job, 
you've moved, you know, you've changed houses, you're going through a divorce, you're getting married, something along these lines where for some reason, we don't know why, a paranormal event may happen in that interval of time. Something like that. So that, that's just an example of like something that seems mm -hmm. really repetitive. And in fact, now that I'm saying that, I'm reminded of uh, who I affectionately call self-hating experiencer Michael Shermer, in fact, got married and had sort of a paranormal experience. Uh, so is that something that you could latch onto as repeatable or test as a repeatable factor? Well, it's interesting you 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 mentioned that particular thing because in my my book uh, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, which is about people who fall down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, I note that a lot of the times it what happens is someone is has a betwixt and between uh, experience, they're in between like uh, two stages of life, like they've lost a job, or there was a lot of it going on during COVID when people were temporarily at home for long periods of time. And it's, it's almost like, you know, the devil will find work for idle hands to do. And if people have a lot of spare time on their hands, it's almost like they're more receptive to certain things. They become more receptive to conspiracy theories and perhaps more receptive to interpreting uh, certain events as being unusual events and, you know, events without explanation where if perhaps they were busy with their jobs or their families, then they might uh, not have time for strange events and they will just blow past it uh, and same thing with conspiracy theories you, you actually need a lot of time to invest if you're going to fall down a QAnon rabbit hole or a, a chemtrails rabbit hole and a lot of the times you see people who do have a lot of spare time fall for these things and I don't know if that's the same thing what you're talking about with uh, strange no. experiences but uh, you know, kind of I mean I'm saying like you see a ghost through. <laughs> yeah, but you if you're seeing a ghost, it's it's really you're you're interpreting seeing something as a ghost. Uh, so it, you know, it may be that your your mind is just a bit more open to that experience. It may be you know, and that works regardless of whether ghosts are real or not. Yeah, you know, perhaps uh, if say, let's say ghosts are real and they show themselves to people, uh, maybe you're only going to see the ghost and recognize it for what it is if you you have all this space in your mind by not being busy all the time uh, and perhaps space to you know, dwell upon it. But yeah, I don't, I, I don't, you know, you know, being going back to the scientific Mick, I, uh, I, I don't really see why ghosts would show themselves more to people who are in that particular uh, state. Yeah. So I'm not sure, you know, I can really proceed much with, with that idea as a hypothesis. Um, well, I don't know. I think the thinking goes that it's breaking up your routine. So mm -hmm. we put on blinders, we have a routine, we we block out. Yeah. Yeah. And when that gets broken up, more we have the ability to see more in the the environment, I guess. You could put it that way. Yeah. No, I mean when you said that I was thinking of uh, the matrix. I can't remember what was going on there, but I think, you know, the guy's a computer programmer at the start or something like that and there was some kind of difficulty going on in his life and then this uh revelation of the world not being what it was uh, was revealed to him. But yeah, maybe that's just yeah, like I was saying, yeah, people have a lot of spare time. They it becomes easier for the this this type of thing to happen. Uh you know, whether it's an actual supernatural thing, which I which I don't think uh you know, in, in some ways is beside the point because you, you, the argument works either way but, but why 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 would why would you need to have um 
you're breaking your routine to be able to see ghosts your mind becomes more open or is it just you have more spare time well good question i think it's uh, well i think the thinking goes anyway that it's that it is you know just kind of what we're talking about like if you break up the the need mm -hmm. for reality to be the way you just assume it is like you're right. not actually seeing reality as it is as you know you're seeing you know through the amalgamation of this you who's like just drawing from the past yeah. and projecting and when that goes away for a second you know is the translogical there it's Nick? funny it's uh <laughs> it, that reminds me of uh, in video games there's a thing called glitching uh, which is basically where you try to find bugs in the the code. Like, you know, I, I wrote this game called Tr Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and there was a whole, like, micro subculture of people who were into uh, glitching. And people are just playing the game normally. They don't see these glitches. But the, the people who are into glitching, they would do things like running into walls repetitively. And they would just or stand in one corner for a thing and spin around in circles a lot. They would do things that were out of the norm, and that was the only way you could reveal these these hidden realities, which sometimes actually were things like you could get through the wall and find this empty space on the other side in the in the video game. And what you're talking about kind of reminds me of that a bit. Like you're, you're kind of glitching reality. You're trying to it like... It is like that, yeah. Uh, you know, or like Super like Mario, drugs. the Minus Worlds. You remember that yeah. from the old Super Mario? Uh, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, when you could... When it went upside down... Yeah, like there, there were these minds where like if you somehow jumped Mario into a block where the corner of his neck hit the block just the right way, he would walk off the screen and suddenly you're in these minus worlds that go on forever and ever. And yeah, it was just... yeah that's, that's exactly the, right, the same type of thing. It's a glitch. In the Maybe that's it influenced a generation happen. of people and that's what this is. <laughs> but do you think like, you know, if I bang my head against the wall enough time, something, uh, the, the wall will open up. But, you know, the people who are searching for glitches, some of the people are, you know, DMT, uh, they call them the psychonauts, people who right. take uh, mind-altering drugs because they, they feel like they're exploring essentially another world. Uh, and, you know, there's, it's, that's the idea, basically. That they, 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 they think that reality is a bit of a you know gloss over things, and if you do certain things, it will reveal the true reality, which I think is what you're getting to with the whole trickster theory thing. Uh, people whose routines have been broken up, they're essentially, you know, in some ways, banging their head against the wall, and perhaps they they break through into another level of reality. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that's again, it's a very deeply personal experience, and it, it it varies a lot by individual, and it's something that's very difficult to study on a scientific level. Can I uh, ask you? Are you friends with um, Michael Shermer? Uh, yes. <laughs> Have I you mean, ever like, asked I, him I about, or has he ever talked to you about that? You know, I can't remember what it yeah. was that he was getting married. A I, radio I don't goes think on so. in a drawer. It plays a. A song that was specific to his wife or something. And I, I think I've heard the story years ago, but uh, I can't remember it. I never actually talked. Did I talk to him? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I did. Because I, I, I interviewed him a few years ago uh, when he, he had a, uh, some kind of critical thinking course that he was promoting. And I interviewed him about it. He might have, he might have talked about it then because that sounds very familiar. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, just, yeah, I was just curious if his thinking on that has changed. Because I remember when he came out and just admitted this, like mm -hmm. everyone you know, in the comments thread of his skeptical community was on him, like just vitriol. And I thought that's mm. unfortunate because those are your people. <laughs> you raised this group to do that to yeah. you if you ever crossed them. 
Is, and so I guess I was just kind of wondering, is that part of why you wrote the book you did about respect? But I guess not. <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> no, I mean, the respect is all about communicating with essentially people who have fallen for a false belief or have a very different belief to you. Um, it, you know, so in some cases, it might not be a false belief. And sometimes, you know, you might learn that they are correct. But what I'm talking about in the book mostly is people who believe in these, these, these kind of false conspiracy theories, like people who believe the earth is flat uh, or people who believe, you know, there was explosives planted in the World Trade Center, things, things like that, things that are fairly out there that are, you know, mainstream science and, and me uh, think uh, are, are not in fact true. Uh, but you know, with with Shermer's thing, you know, I guess that's kind of it demonstrates an unfortunate aspect of you know, skepticism is that a lot of skeptics have this kind of almost violent pushback against anything that they consider to be wrong, uh, and it it becomes this very knee jerk reaction. Like a lot of the reaction about UFOs recently that I've, I've heard from the skeptical community. And they're just like, oh my God, why is NASA studying UFOs? That's the stupidest thing ever. When there are actually quite reasonable reasons for NASA to study UFOs. It doesn't mean NASA is you know, searching for aliens in, in flying saucers, but you know, the studying UFOs is a reasonable thing to do because we know UFOs exist. We know that pilots see things that they can't identify. We don't know what they are. And we know that there are strange videos of things that we don't know what they are either. So studying what they are is, is a, a worthwhile endeavor. It's a scientific process. But uh, the skeptical community is horrified that hmm. NASA is, is studying these things and horrified that the Pentagon is, is studying them. But, you know, and I'm... I'm partly horrified but only because of the uh kind of the way it arrived via skinwalker ranch and this kind of uh, high strangeness promoting it rather than the more sensible uh uh or the more i guess defensible uh approach of you know there are strange things in the air we need to figure out what they are which is essentially what they're doing they're really not now uh, talking about any of the the strangeness from skinwalker it's just unfortunately that's how it got started well, I'm surprised the skeptics, who are at least the science writers, who must know NASA people, wouldn't inquire about it. Because to me, it seems like, well, you've got now private corporations who are flying people into space. NASA needs a budget. <laughs> NASA needs to latch on to something that's popular that can give them money. And this is it. Well, and it's I, like, I don't like know changing UFO to UAP for the military. Isn't that like you can create a perpetual faceless enemy and just always yeah, have well, military budget? Uh, it's again, though, it's not very much money. Like, we've got China, and we've got Russia. They're pretty big problems that require a lot of money to be spent to effectively deal with. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to the stage where we're spending billions of dollars on UAP research. We're going to be spending tens of millions of dollars. Uh, on it and, and you know perhaps with good reason because some of these incidents that we're looking at are things like chinese drones or russian drones like buzzing uh buzzing our ships buzzing the the battle fleet uh the the, the carrier fleets and so these are actually real issues of real national security that they need looking into and you know perhaps it's unfortunate that it all got rolled together with all you know uaps in general but you know again then there's the the specter of unknown threats. What if uh, China develops some technology 
that's a bit more advanced than the current drones and they can fly for, for days or something like that. We, we want to have a net of observing that uh, will actually detect these things and not dismiss them as, as flying saucers and actually look into them. So there's, there's, there's sensible things. Sure, but weren't, weren't these there always should be some problems? Money spent on them. Like, why weren't they doing uh, this all along? Well, part of it is because of drones. This is you know, essentially a new technology, and and not just you know drones per se, but autonomous drones now. Now that we have computers that are intelligent enough and, and GPS uh, for location, we can have if we can get a long range autonomous drone. That's a powerful weapon, and it's a powerful surveillance tool. And this is something that's relatively new, having the computing power and battery life, uh, other power sources, and you know, GPS to a degree, and that's been around for a while, but very, very small GPS receivers haven't been around for that long. Uh, so these are, to some degree, new new problems. Even things like surveillance balloons. Right? Surveillance balloons uh, historically were used in the Civil War, but you had to have a person in the surveillance balloon to then land and report back what they saw. And you know, now you can, you know, if you have a very, very small transmitter on this, this, this something that you couldn't have before, it's something that wasn't technically feasible before. So new technology is creating new challenges. And there's also the unknowns that I said earlier, like there's the possibility that new technology is being developed that we don't know what it is, the unknown unknowns, and we should be ready for those. Is there any footage that gives you pause and, and I... I also want to ask it in this way. I know in UFO world, there are a lot of people who say the old uh, photos and maybe video, but definitely photos are more likely, you know, the ones that haven't been explained are more likely to be real because they didn't have the technology we do. Does that ring true to you? Or, and if not, why not? Not based on the photos that I've seen. Uh, the, you know, the famous photos of flying saucers, you know, they look like hubcaps and they look like, they could be very easily faked. And you, know, you get some that are obviously fake, like the Billy Mia stuff. That's just you know, obviously stuff that he made in his garage and is hanging from a, from a fishing line or something like that. And then you've got the, the simpler stuff, like the old, uh, I can't remember where it is, the farmhouse one, where it just looks like a, a pie dish of some sort and there's, there's no visible means of support. But you know, it could be something tossed in the air. It could be something suspended from a temporary structure. It could be all kinds of things they didn't require super advanced technology to fake. None of the things in the historical record are things that were impossible uh, to, be, to fake or to be things that are simply misidentified uh, technology. So I, I, I really stay away from the old stuff because it's been picked over so many times. People have analyzed it. There's usually not a lot you can do with it. The people who took the photos are often dead uh, and the photos themselves are very low quality. So... I, I think if you know if there are flying saucers uh, or, or some kind of alien spaceships, yes, people can fake it, but that doesn't mean that you can't get real footage. Just because things can be faked doesn't mean there's no possibility of real footage. We can, you know, show me a really good fake. You know, what are the best things that I'm saying is is fake? This is some uh, an opposite. This is a, I guess, a counter argument that people always say. I say. UFO videos are very poor quality, which kind of indicates they're in the low information zone. And the response often is, well, Mick, if we gave you a really good UFO video, we, you would just say it was fake. And I would say, go ahead, <laughs> give me this really good UFO video. I've not seen it yet. 
so it's it's if you get a good UFO video with good provenance, like people, you know, named people who are independent, uh, uh, who took it from different locations, that would be perfectly reasonable evidence for me. I wouldn't be going around saying it's fake unless there was good reason to think that. So bring so, it. So, I mean, then, okay, of the modern stuff, is there anything that stands out as, like, for instance, the Tic Tac video, the much vaunted Tic Tac video, is that easily identifiable to you, or or no? no. Uh, I mean, the, the, all no UFO videos. Well, very few UFO videos are easily identifiable. That's why they're UFO videos. Uh, like someone, uh, John John uh, Greenwald, John Greenwald or the Black uh -huh. Vault, uh, posted something a couple of days ago, uh, which was this this footage from a drone of a Russian fighter jet getting too close to the drone and then turning around and firing its afterburners at it, causing turbulence. And uh, the Americans were upset about it and said, you know, this was terrible. Here's the footage that proved it happened. And John was like saying, this, this footage is amazing. It's really high resolution. We can see exactly what's going on. Why don't we get this footage of, of UFOs? And I think the reason we don't get that quality footage of UFOs is that if it existed, we'd be able to see what it was and it wouldn't be a UFO. I think UFOs only exist as UFOs if you can't tell what they actually are. Uh, it's you know, what I describe as the low information zone. If something is sufficiently far away for your camera or it's too dark or that you're out of focus, you, know, you don't have enough information to tell what something is and that becomes a UFO. Now, there's kind of like, you know, there's things that are really far away, you just like little dots in the sky, not really very interesting. Then there's things that are very close to you. You can tell what it is, like it's a plane or it's a bird. Then there's things that are kind of just on the border between, you know, the identifiable zone and the low information zone. And those are the things that are the really interesting UFOs uh, because you can't immediately tell what they are. Sometimes you can do some analysis on them and figure it out. You can, you know, kind of push the low information zone back a bit. But, you know, the problem with UFOs is that they're, un they're unidentified. Uh, and being unidentified means you don't know what they are. And as you don't know what they are, they might be something mundane. You know, that thing might be a plane. Now, I haven't seen, like, good video of, of something that's unambiguously anomalous, like doing something like, you know, moving around in an amazing pattern that's, you know, Definitely not, uh, you know, just a, I don't know, a laser pointer or whatever, or a, or a fake. You know, something that's an actual craft in the sky, uh, moving around. Because I think, you know, this is what the, you know, to, not to harp on the point, but if you have enough information, you'd be able to solve that case. You'd be able to tell what it is. Every single case, every single UFO case that has been solved, has not been an alien spaceship. It's been something mundane. And that's the track record of ufology is solving cases that are not um, alien spaceships or anything anomalous. And the things that are out there that are unsolved, they're very low quality. You did, there's not enough information. And I don't really see that changing. Just a couple more questions. Uh, one, just in sort of total of what's going on in the, in the last few years of this push for disclosure of something that like if the answer is we have nothing to disclose no one will believe <laughs> in ufo world at least where do you think that's ultimately going i mean there 
going to have conversations yeah. with David Grush. They're going to do all these sort of public displays. Do you think that this sort of goes on just perpetually forever, or is there going to be a closure, whether it's disclosure or not, coming up soon? Well, the only closure you're going to get is actual disclosure if if you know, they reveal that aliens are real. Because if they say, oh, no, there, there aren't, this wasn't a crash, an alien crash retrieval program, then you, some people will believe it. A lot of people are just going to say it's a cover-up. Or they'll say, oh, well, they didn't know. They didn't do the investigation. The shadow government is covering it up or keeping it secret from them. It, it's, it's never going to end because there's always going to be these things that are unknown. There's, there's always going to be things that there's going to be videos of things that are blurry bobs that are too far away. So unless we actually get actual proof that you know something anomalous is going on, we're just going to stay basically in exactly the same state that we've been in since the 1940s. You know, back in you know, 1948, when things were kicking off, and especially in the early 50s, People were talking about the same things that we're talking about now. They were talking about government disclosure and about how it's around the corner. And you know, they were talking about government whistleblowers who were going to explain what was going on. And none of this actually happened. And this, this cycle is repeated over and over again, unless we actually get real disclosure of something like aliens, then it can't be resolved. So it's going to go on forever and ever. <laughs> and how long are you going to go on with this? Because I've always wanted to ask a skeptic, like I, when, if this didn't happen to me, if, if it wasn't like something in my life, you know, however you want to frame that, um, I would be making fun of it and then ignoring it. Like I don't engage with things I don't like. Mm -hmm. Why do you engage with things you don't like or believe in? And how long do you do that for? Well, I, what do you get I out like, of it? I like solving problems. Uh, I okay. like figuring stuff out, and I like figuring out these UFO videos, especially. Uh, I enjoy talking to people as well. Like you know, I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. It's very yeah, interesting, me too. and you know, it's just you know, I learn new things uh, about the trickster theory. That was a new thing to me, uh, that aspect of it. Uh, and you know, I, I just basically enjoy using um, using my powers for good, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but using my video game skills to actually do useful stuff, fun stuff, and figuring things out. And you know, I've, I've figured out a whole bunch of, of UFOs. Uh, people, <laughs> some people on Twitter will say, Mick, you've never solved a UFO case. And they're only thinking of the ones that haven't been solved yet. I've never solved any of the ones that haven't been solved yet, which is true. But I have solved lots of ones that have been solved, but now they're not actually UFO cases, so they don't count anymore. Uh, but I have a lot of fun doing it. I learn a lot of uh, fun things. And it's good collaborating with people on Metabunk, uh, my, my forum. We do a lot of collaboration, a lot of investigation where there's several people working on it at the same time and just contributing. It's very ad hoc, but uh, it's a lot of fun. And that's why I do it. I enjoy it. I'm not doing okay. it because I don't enjoy it. <laughs> well, do you, I mean, I don't know. I Like, I talk about this publicly so much that, like, people then want to talk to me about it. Because they're excited and they've got questions. And I'm just like, no, I have boundaries. I need to not talk about this in my personal life ever again. You, do you get that way? Or like when you get off with me, are you going to be like, right back out there, you know, anyone who wants to engage with me, that's great. Let's talk about this forever. Or do you get burned out on it ever? No, I, I, yeah, I do. I mean, if new stuff comes up, 
then it's it's interesting. But if it if it was the same thing over and over again, but you know the good thing about UFOs is there's always new UFO cases. There's new interesting things happening. Like um, uh, there's yeah, let's see what's what's been going on recently with UFOs. There was that stupid Las Vegas thing where some guy saw some giant aliens in his backyard. Uh, but there was this, there's always new UFO videos. A lot of them I don't really spend much time on them because they're you know, they're from TikTok or something when they don't have any any source. But there will be some interesting new things coming out. Like there was the the that sphere video came out from the Pentagon. Kirkpatrick brought it out. The Mosul orb before that. I'm I'm looking forward to more fun things like the green triangles and perhaps like more videos like Gimbal and GoFast that we can uh, do some deep analysis on. There's an ongoing situation with Starlink satellites. Pilots are constantly reporting these lights that move around seemingly in circles when really it's just one goes this way, one goes this way. Little patch of the sky 40 degrees above the sun at night uh, shows reflections of Starlink satellites and Pilots are constantly reporting these as, as UFOs. I've been doing it for like over a year now. But, you know, it's a fun thing to engage people with. It's a fun thing to investigate. It's a fun thing to like do my little visualizations and try to explain them to people. And then it's fun to talk about it as well. Great. So then you'll be out there doing that. And where can people find you? Uh, yeah. What's the best way to contact you or find you on the net? Oh, well, you can. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, for now, at uh, at Mick West, and I have a YouTube channel where I do lots and lots of these little little investigations and some of the uh, partial investigations where I solve some aspects of a case, like Gimbal. You know, figure some things, stuff out about Gimbal, but I haven't solved it. But there's loads and loads of interesting videos about that type of thing. And if you d- dig a bit deeper down my timeline on YouTube, you will see uh, some of the older conspiracy theory stuff. If you're interested in 9/11 or flat Earth or stuff like that. And I have a website, metabunk.org, uh, which is the discussion forum uh, where we do all kinds of different things, everything from ghosts to flat earth to uh, to uh, alternative medicine and uh, free energy and UFOs. Uh, so all kinds of uh, fun stuff there. There's uh, definitely a focus on UFOs at the moment because that's uh, the, one of the more fun and interesting topics to talk about. Uh, but yeah, and if you want, you can email me. I'm just mick at mickwest.com and uh, ask me a question, send me your videos. Excellent. Well, Mick, thank you for doing this. I, I don't know if uh, this is like Damien coming to the church or <laughs> if you're the church and I'm Damien, but I appreciate that we have this dialogue. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, very much the opportunity to kind of like... Uh, you know, engage on different aspects of the topic. You know, not everybody wants to talk to people who are kind of diametrically opposed. And I think it's kind of great when we can we can have a, a polite conversation and everybody moves forward a little bit. Absolutely. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.